Hello, health investor. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Wanting to interview someone about regenerative agriculture, I scoured the web. I hoped to find someone kind of cool, but I ended up finding the coolest, nicest expert, Dr. Tim LaSalle. LaSalle's number one hope is for our food system to transform into one that's regenerative, meaning it will be able to mitigate climate change by sequestering 100% of the current emissions, as well as providing the most robust, ecologically regenerative method to feed a growing world population. He is currently co-founder and co-director of the Regenerative Agriculture Initiative at Chico State University. LaSalle previously served as the first CEO of Rodale Institute, Executive Director of the Northwest Earth Institute, Executive Director of the Allen Savory Center for Holistic Management, and he was consultant, advisor, and research coordinator for the Howard G. Buffett Foundation in Africa, revamping soils and providing food security for smallholder farmers. While serving as a professor at California Polytechnic State University, LaSalle also started and operated his own dairy farm and became involved with the California Agricultural Leadership Program. He soon became its CEO, where he arranged educational leadership programs in more than 80 countries. Doing this work, he personally became exposed to and a student of many of humanity's global challenges. If you're wondering how to eat in a way that supports and protects the environment, as well as your own health, and I certainly hope you are, this episode is going to be right up your alley. Do me a favor. While you're listening, take a screenshot of yourself, post it to social media, and tag me at The Health Investment. I love to see you in action as you listen to and learn from the awesome guests I chat with. All right, let's hear from Dr. LaSalle. Enjoy! Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and host of the Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing, you deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing, there are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm gonna share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness, because I wanna help you get healthy for good without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one, So visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Tim. Thank you so much for being here with me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I've been Really looking forward to interviewing somebody about regenerative agriculture, and I know that you are an expert on that topic, so I know my listeners and I are anxious to hear everything you can share with us. Well, it's a delight to be with you today, Brooke. I think that the topic um, that you pick uh, in regenerative agriculture is crucial to the discussion of human health and diet, and it's going to be fun to explore this with you today. Definitely. Will you share your story and your background and then specifically how you ended up in this field to begin with? I would be delighted. You know, I grew up on a farm in the Central Valley of California 
my father was an educator, but uh, also we always had a farm. I think he thought for his four boys, it was a way to keep them out of trouble. There was always work to be being done, but it was always a high input, what we would call conventional or chemical-based farming, scientific-based farming. And I ended up uh, leaving the university to go to graduate school. And all of agricultural sciences in those days still were pretty solely focused on high input, uh, intensive agriculture, again, chemical based. And I ended up being recruited to come back to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo as a professor, which I did for 12 years, uh, became a full professor, again, teaching what I knew, teaching what science, quote unquote, told us uh, was the way agriculture should be. But I then had begun starting traveling and consulting and then running a leadership program that took me around the world. Uh, and I've been to over 95 countries, but the more I traveled, the more I saw, the more I couldn't help but question as population continued to grow, is what we're doing sustainable? And soon I learned not only was it not sustainable, um, we really were headed to an end point. We were destroying our soils, polluting our waterways, actually polluting our food, the food that we eat. And later on, I really learned we were releasing carbon into the atmosphere. So we in agriculture, that we brag about feeding the world, we brag about, you know, if you if you're, have your mouth full, don't complain about a farmer, kind of bumper sticker thing. But in fact, we could do it differently. And I ran across someone in Central America in the 80s, Roland Bunch, who was showing methodologies to build topsoil at an inch a year. And there was not a textbook in any university that said that was possible. And it caused me to think and relook uh, through every lens I had at what I was doing, what I was contributing to or actually destroying in the planet with regard to what I was teaching or practicing in, even on my own small farm. I eventually ended up running the Alan Savory Center for Holistic Management to stop the spread of desertification, change the way small holder farmers and large ranchers grazed because they were destroying the terrain and knowing we could build it robustly. I then eventually ran the Rodale um, Institute, which really uh, studied and researched organic agriculture, again, getting out of the chemical framing and those toxins and, and, and what ends up in our waterways and on our food. But I also realized that that still wasn't enough as far as how do we not just slow down the decline, but can we rebuild? And um, that meant regenerating. And I ended up going with Howard Buffett into Africa and my wife and I spent four years there working in, in uh, some land he gave me. He said, Tim, I've got some of the, the best poor soil you can ever get. And it was really terrible soil. It was short and phosphorus. It was very sandy. There was like no organic matter left in it. And I challenged myself and said, if I can produce food on this land with no outside inputs, in other words, not depending on any fossil fuel, fertilizer, pesticides, but can I build a system and make a profit and become a demonstration site for smallholder farmers to become food secure, to have enough food for the families, and to have surplus to sell so they had fees to pay for school and education for their kids. Not only did that succeed, it succeeded so well, had five times increase in yields over what the smallholders were getting. And the only thing I purchased was seed. So you'd certainly have enough money for seed if you can increase your yields five times. 
But the amount of carbon capture is what really continues to inspire me. And Brooke, I just want to say that we can improve, and you and I'll talk today about nutrition and soil and, and how you can improve your nutrition through better soil and what that means. But let me say that the existential crisis of climate remains with us as we live in this COVID crisis right now. But there's another existential crisis, and that is FAO has told us there are 60 years of topsoil left on this planet, and our farming practices continue to lose topsoil. 60 years, no food. 10, 15 years if we don't change the climate uh, trajectory, big crisis. But talking about regenerative agriculture, we can fix both of those things, and we'll talk about the nutrition as well. So that's my story in a and a quick nutshell, if I may say. I mean, if you could see me, my mouth just dropped open with the 60 years statistic. That's crazy. That's... Mm. Well, that's what, one of the things that I think we, we fail to realize is the invention of the pl plow, which permitted agriculture to develop the way it did, actually just destroyed the planet. And it continues to do so. And, and a great book to read, a, a colleague of mine, a friend, David Montgomery, wrote a book called Dirt, The Erosion of Civilization. And it's a great read for anybody, if you're in agriculture or not. It's a history of what we've done and, and why, unless we change our evil ways, so to speak, and how we're dealing with and farming and working with our topsoils, um, there's an end to it. It comes oh. to a crashing end. So it's important for us to regenerate. So I noticed when you were talking in your first bit about, you mentioned we a lot, and then you were said you traveled to 95 different countries. So is the United States really the biggest problem when it comes to farming? Are most of the other, most other countries using regenerative agriculture? No, we, we've been able to spread our science. I'm going to leave that in parentheses about mm -hmm. high input, um, agriculture and uh, some level of tillage or even no-till, high level of, of chemical inputs. And companies and corporations that profit from that are all over the world. And, and I remember being with a friend and a fellow researcher in Ghana, and, and he took my wife and I to a, a bus stop in Kumasi, uh, the major city there in the central part of the country. And at that bus stop, there were probably 150 different ag chemical sales uh, businesses. And, and these are small little businesses, but from fertilizers to pesticides to herbicides and some made in China and some made in the US. And it's a huge business. And we've convinced farmers they need this stuff. It's toxic, mm -hmm. it's killing the life of the soil, it's killing the fertility of the soil, and it makes them dependent. It creates drug addiction, in this case, chemical addiction in our farming systems. And that's where we find ourselves in the United States generally and around the world. You know, the first time I was in China, I was still could see and experience what, because I was in the early 80s when they still were using some of the farming methods they'd used for 5,000 years. That is sustainable. Mm -hmm. um, and they moved to the new scientific approaches, which now they're destroying their soils as rapidly as the rest of us. So. This is what we have to go into the regenerative world uh, for your generation and, and for any future generations. And we need to do it today and tomorrow, but we can't wait. It has to be now. Right. Are there any countries that are really leading in this right now? Countries, no. 
Um, there are not, but I'll tell you, um, this term regeneration, and we, we threw a term out and had 150 companies and organizations sign on to it about four years ago, uh, trying to put a stake in the ground to help define it. We know it's going to get co-opted and, and abused as a term uh, by companies that want to profit or, or organizations that don't buy into a no chemical idea. But the fact of the matter is, is that the term resonated with people. And it now, and I've spoken uh, with some executives at Whole Food. They've invited me in uh, with some major companies, um, four or five different major companies. They're trying to figure out how they can go carbon neutral. And unless they shift their supply chain, in other words, their product off the farm, to something that's capturing carbon instead of releasing carbon, there's no way for them to go carbon neutral. So they know they have to come to this regenerative world. We can help drive that conversation, particularly out of Chico State University and the research we're doing there. And David Johnson, who now we've made an adjunct professor out of New Mexico State, but he's an adjunct now at Chico. We can begin to, I think, actually help the whole world convert as we get the data out there and show the potential huge opportunity that lays at our feet if we just change our scientific understandings, move from an old paradigm to a living, breathing new paradigm. And we'll go deeper into that, I'm sure, in a few minutes. So how difficult is it for a farm to switch over? It's very easy. Oh. Uh, it's very easy for a farm to switch over. It's easier to switch over to regenerative agriculture than it is to switch to organic. And you'll eventually get to organic by default in regenerative. And so with my dear organic friends, and I would say, I eat organic, I grow organic, my wife and I are committed to it. She's even trained in biodynamic, we even use that work. But to talk to a, a conventional farmer, they're gonna throw you out their front door because it, it takes three years to transition. Uh, some of it looks like, oh my God. And it's in some cases, if you're in the middle of the country, it's those West Coast and East Coast liberals that like that stuff and that's not mm -hmm. us. So we don't even want to have those conversations with farmers or sometimes even the climate change conversation with some farmers because they're in denial. There's a, a sort of a political alignment uh, of denying that. And so what we need, because we need all farmers to change for their sakes, for the sake of the land, for the sake of their children and for the sake of the waterways. And so language matters. And we spend time with farmers talking about one thing that does matter to them, whether or not they're going to be in business next year. So we talk about profit. And that's where regenerative mm -hmm. agriculture can bring quicker profits to them as they start to cut out the, the input cost that they have to incur now in the conventional understandings. But once we build the biological health of the soil, which can happen very rapidly, which again, we can talk about today, um, the resiliency, it's like building your gut biome in your own body to a healthy biome, you become healthier. Your immunity jumps up. Your, if you have weight problems, they start to drop. Uh, all of that happens when you change that gut biome. The same happens in the soil. The plants get healthier. They produce more. They, they resist insects. Wow. They push back on disease because the soil doesn't really carry it uh, in a way that affects the plants. And we capture carbon like crazy. So this oh. is working with living systems, and this is the new paradigm. And this is what regenerative agriculture, which often gets watered down to a few simple principles, uh, needs to understand to truly regenerate robustly. 
we need to enliven that soil and we can do that almost immediately uh, through bringing a very broad spectrum not a bug in the jug with just a few organisms you know to grow a crop uh, but literally a multitude tens of thousands of organisms that are fungal dominant and you can do this make it in your own backyard you can make it with what you have in your own backyard uh, for free so to speak is that what in, in essence uh, getting the fungal dominance up is what moves that soil from sort of a weed-focused uh, growing system to a productive food growing system, a very productive food growing system. But we got to get the fungal numbers up. And that's what we farm out of our soils is those fungal numbers, either through tilling it, either with plows, discs, or our garden hoe, uh, or through chemicals. Both mm -hmm. destroy those fungal communities. So either with fertilizers or herbicides or pesticides, we kill it. And, and that's where we've got to pull both of those out. So organic often uses too much tillage. Conventional often uses way too much in the way of chemicals. And regenerative knows we've got to stop both of those, slow them down, and get the biology jumping. And we can do that within a year. And then it just if we feed it by just keeping live roots in the ground for as long as we can, uh, it'll get better every year. And that's a tremendous and encouraging and profitable direction for farmers. Right. So, wow. So get better in a year. So can it go, can a farm be completely car carbon neutral in just a year? Maybe not, but maybe yes. So what happens by not tilling, you're not releasing that uh, so much carbon. You're not losing it out of your soil. So, yeah, you possibly can. The question would be how much uh, diesel are you burning? If you're not putting fertilizers on, which are heavily um, fossil fuel based, not pesticides or, or fungicides and herbicides, fossil fuel based, you maybe could in the first year. But hmm. certainly by the second or third year, you could certainly get to be carbon neutral and putting away more than you're emitting and solving the climate crisis. So we know, and I'm going to throw this data point out, and we haven't gotten to the nutrition piece yet, Brooke. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, get, I get rather no, passionate no. about this. This is fascinating to <laughs> so, me. So carry on. So we know, and some of the work David Johnson has done out of New Mexico, and we're replicating. We're working with him. He's working with us at Chico. We're replicating in the field in some research uh, areas on farm scale um, that we can get uh, maybe a magnitude higher, maybe up to 10 tons of carbon captured per hectare per year uh, in these highly robust biological systems. And that means if we converted agriculture around the world, not only would that smallholder farmer be food secure, but be building soil in those tired and poor soils in Africa, be building the carbon and the life and the biology and the water holding capacity and the water percolating capacity in those soils, to grow more crops easier uh, that are more resistant to disease and to insects. Um, but what would happen is we would start to be sucking this excess carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it back where it belongs, where it's useful in the carbon cycle, the living carbon cycle, instead of where it's toxic and polluting in the atmosphere and in the ocean. So here's the solution. It lays at our feet, literally and figuratively, and we have a chance by in really kind of supporting, encouraging, talking about demanding regenerative agriculture at its most robust level and globally. Uh, let's all help get it done because this fixes our future. 
and, and I'm not a company. Uh, I'm somebody that just cares. And why I'm is screaming this uh, to the uh, highest heavens is, is that uh, it is working with nature at her finest hour when she can show us how robust a truly, uh, um, uh, what do I say, biologically healthy system produces life. And that also works in our own body. You know, if it's truly a healthy, you know, 90% of the genetic material and all of the cells that are in or on our body are not us, they're organisms that mm -hmm. are single cell organisms from viruses to uh, bacteria, etc. And if they're in a healthy balance, we're healthy. And if they're not, we're not. Same in the soil. And we've been destroying our soil health for just about 10,000 years. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Incredible. You mentioned that organic uses more tilling. So does that mean that organic produce is actually worse for the environment than conventional produce? Um, you know, one of the things that I really work hard uh, on is to not get into an organic and a conventional battle because uh. we got to go regenerative. And so uh -huh. tillage is very damaging. Chemicals are very damaging. So they're both right. have their negative. Okay. All organic is typically more heavy on the tillage because how do they control weeds? And often that's the technique they use and um, makes sense. But we need to go into the more no-till. Well, no-till got co-opted by the chemical world, like let's use Roundup to kill those weeds and just keep farming. Well, we're going to say let's use a highly fungal dominant inoculant in that soil and keep feeding that. Get it on once and keep feeding it by keeping live roots and diverse roots in that soil. And what we find is weeds don't like that scenario. So your weed pressures drop dramatically and your crops take off and herbicides disappear. So hmm. that's the great news. So have you been talking mostly so far about growing produce and how, where does meat fit into this? Well, meat fits into this from the standpoint in regenerative agriculture in grazing. What it says is we need to pull out of the CAFO, the concentrated animal feeding systems, which you know most of our meat is produced that way. And we need to go to grass-based systems. And, and here's the health piece to this. So grass-based systems, and I don't care if it's chickens for meat or eggs, or if it's dairy for milk, or if it's beef or sheep or, or, or even hogs for meat. Um, if they are on grass, their omega-3 levels dramatically increase and their omega-6 levels drop. Well, what we find is we're, we're often heavy in omega-6s in this country, which is going to add to diabetes and to overweight and to depression and to ill health. But if you have a higher omega-3, uh, and that will occur like with people that eat fish and, and certain foods, but move to a grass-based diet if you eat animal products, uh, the omega-3s come up. And so you end up getting better fatty acids in your, in your system, and you become healthier too. Mm -hmm. So the animals get healthier. You, they really don't need antibiotics anymore. Um, and you get healthier. And I, I almost cried once because I had my own dairy for years and, and conventional. And I was on an organic dairy. And we had a veterinarian who, who worked with organic uh, dairies. And organic dairy cattle, one of the, the, the challenges they had is they had surplus cattle. And the reason is their cows lived so long, they hardly treated them for anything. Uh, and the reproduction was better, so they had more calves every year on, on a per cow basis. 
And, and it was, wait a minute, these cows get healthier because they're on grass? Well, yeah, it's the natural uh, way that they evolved. Grasses and, and ruminants and animals evolved together. And the grasses stimulated by the bite of the cow, the saliva from the cow, the manure and urine from the cow, the trampling from the cow, as an example, it's also sheep and others, stimulates the growth of the grasses. And the, the roots put out more, more energy into the soil, feeding the organisms, more carbon is captured, and things become more fertile. Problematically, Brooke, what's happened is that if you look at a lot of pasture scenarios, it's an overgrazed condition. They just put the animals out there and leave them until they eat the grass down to nothing. That's yeah. damaging to the grass, and that's not capturing carbon anymore. And that's why the holistic management approaches uh, where you have high intensity grazing for a very short time period and you trample and leave 60% of the grass there and get them off, which most ranchers go, I'm going to leave grass there. But the system becomes healthier and more resilient and will produce more total. And you can increase your cow numbers on this in that scenario. And so you have to be trained and learn how to do that. But it's the way nature worked. When the buffalo came across the Great Plains, they were chased by predators and they bunched and they moved on and they bunched and they moved on. So they left the urine and they, and they trampled grasses down and they, they chewed and then they maybe wouldn't come back for two or three years. And the systems got resilient and we built those, we, nature, built those deep, dark soils in the Midwest. With mm -hmm. all of that carbon being captured out of the atmosphere, some of those grasses were deep rooted, went deep down. Depositing as the plant exudates gives off sugars and carbohydrates to the living organisms that are bringing those plants nutrients, minerals that they are actually liberating from the parent material, the rock below, bringing it to the plant so there's a healthy plant. This symbiotic relationship created deeper soils, captured more carbon and created more overall life, more biodiversity below ground, and that got reflected by more biodiversity above ground. Soil hmm. is not just to produce our food, it's to produce the abundance of life on this planet. If I buy 100% grass-fed beef, does that, that doesn't necessarily mean it's from a carbon neutral setting. It could just be, again, using too much of the grass that you shouldn't be using all the time. That's a potential. That's okay. a potential that it's not. But it's um, the, uh, a re if they're starting to use regenerative or or savory or um, something along the line of that mob grazing, and they're advertising that, then they are uh, capturing more carbon. That part we know. Uh, Richard Teague out of Texas A and M has done great research on that. Uh, David Johnson's doing some monitoring on that now with some study that Peter Bick out of Arizona is um, pulling together uh, multiple researchers and looking at grazing. And Peter Bick has some great videos uh, that he's just posting called Carbon Cowboys. And it's talking about cow managers that know how to do this well. And I encourage people to watch those. It's, it's how you build that soil and the biodiversity and the health of the system and the health of the cattle. Is there enough land in the United States or the world to graze all cattle that way and to have every farm be regenerative? So let me answer that question. I'm happy you asked it. It's a valid question. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so, but, but let me say this about that, even though I don't know. And that is to say that 
um, we could make so many of the soils productive again. I mean, I remember going through the Middle East and through uh, Morocco and different places that just were terribly overgrazed and decimated and bare and dry. Some of those th lands can be brought back through proper grazing methodologies and, and mm -hmm. therefore you can robustly increase. I, I think the bigger question for me is, is can we eat meat at the level, the, the pounds per person that United States eats in the world? And probably not. Mm -hmm. So what? You know, that's a so what? We don't have to eat that much if we mm -hmm. believe we need to eat meat. So um, the point is, is though, but if we move and push towards grass-fed and then demand the regenerative, um, then uh, we can start to begin to insist that the land is being cared for and that we're, while we're eating that meat, we know that somebody's pulling carbon out of the atmosphere on my behalf because eating is helping destroy the planet or if it's highly regeneratively produced food, it's helping preserve and restore the planet. And mm -hmm. that's a very strong de delineating line. Am I helping kill us or am I helping build a future? Is it easier to switch a farm that grows only fruits and vegetables over to regenerative or one that raises animals? I'd say it's it, it's easier if you have the grass, if you have the range, that's probably easier to convert the grazing land because you're just changing the way you're handling the cattle. You got to add some movable fencing and it takes more management and more time. But to, to convert, vegetables are a real challenge and we're doing some research um, in collaboration with the University of California Davis, but we're working with five farmers in trying to greatly reduce tillage in vegetable production. That's a whole long story about vegetable production. There's a few people like Singing Frog Farm up in the Petaluma area that is doing it. It's on a very intensive two and a half acres, but they're grossing over $100,000 an acre in, in their uh, farming system. So that's, you know, amazing. That's good. Oh, but they're okay. getting five, five to seven crops a year uh, off of each plot of land. So they're very intensive and very carbon capturing. Um, but if you go to the Salinas Valley, the big tractors come out, plow out the old crop, disc it up, get the beds ready, plant the new seeds, get the next crop coming. And that's what we're trying to make the shift in is to change those scenarios because we keep losing carbon and soil health and demanding inputs to replace what we're destroying. Are farmers generally on board with hearing what you have to say and making the switch once they learn all of this? Or is it tough to convince them? So, so Brooke, you, in your life, you, you go to certain things and you gather uh, maybe huge amounts of information that are quite convincing and are scientifically sound, and you go share them with uh, 10 of your friends. How many make a change? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Probably not, not that many. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Farmers, they're people. I got to say, yeah. they're just people. So well, that's where we try and, and work in the realm of thinking in terms of profit and showing them. And in, in any of our research we do, we always do an economic analysis. And, and I'll just cite an example. Working with Howard Buffett, he agreed to help fund part of a research project on one of his, one of his farms in Arizona. And we're doing corn there. And in the very first year of applying the biological inoculants that I said you can make in your own backyard that's heavily fungal dominant, um, the corn yield was almost the same as 180 pounds full fertilized treatments. 
But that was just in the first year because we know by the third and the fifth year it gets even better and we're quite confident it's going to outproduce the fertilized treatments. But he put 180 pounds. There was a profit on just the biological treatments and there was really not a profit where you had the heavy inputs because it costs so much to grow that corn. And so that's the conversation we want to have. The, the farm manager there walks out with two ears of corn that are the same size, one from the biologically treated and one from the fertilized. And he goes, why am I putting fertilizer on the field? And that's the realization point we want to get mm -hmm. the farmers to and we want to help them with. Because if they don't have to write a check to somebody else um, and they can keep that money themselves, that's the way in through their front door in helping them make this change. But they're human. They're full of yeah. habits. They've succeeded doing it the other way. They haven't tried this way. It's a risk, in, at least in their minds. And so that's how we're, we're trying to help develop farmer training programs, farmer ambassadors, farmer support systems. We're trying to find funding to get all that done so that there's a way to support this shift and, and give the farmer a crutch and some help and some confidence to move forward. Are most farmers aware of the statistic you shared earlier about the 60 years of good soil left? Or is that, again, something that is it kind of a point of denial or? It's not something that's going to get advertised by the fertilizer salesman. It's not going to be advertised <laughs> right. by the chemical salesman. It doesn't come in the common of farm um, ma magazines or farm conversations. But some farmers have personally experienced it and they know they have to change. And some farmers can't see it because it happens kind of slowly. In other words, if my soil is going to be gone in 60 years from this year till next year, I can't see that difference. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, not all of them are there. And a lot of farmers are 60 years old already and they're going, yeah, well, I'm not around. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's problematic, but let's, let's just for you and I and your audience to think about this, this is a big change we need to make and make now. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple times um, already the omega-3 content of meat produced on regenerative farms, but what about in terms of produce? What's the nutrient density compared to conventional? So one of the things that, that uh, Dr. Cindy Daly at Chico State, who's uh, um, our director at the Center for Regenerative Agriculture, and I have tried to do is to get some substantial funding to take a look at um, the correlation between high soil health, high biological life in the soil, where the nutrients are brought by, and all the nutrients the plant need are brought to that plant by the biology versus conventional farming. And that has been the hardest thing for us to ever get funded. So we haven't been successful at that too much. We're starting to do some nutrient analysis and testing. So some of it goes on some literature review that I can say, yes, it is, it is uh, better. Uh, some of it goes on observation. Um, some people would say, well, you can taste test it and you can taste the minerals and the sweetness and the sugars, et cetera, that come forward to with really healthy, healthy food that comes from regenerative soils. But when you have a, a really high biome, soil biome, that's successful in making a healthy plant, and we used to always say this at Rodale, healthy soil makes healthy plants, makes healthy people. Well, it really needs to go to this biological biome understanding, which, as I said, organic could destroy that biome by tillage. But when we make that healthy plant, we do see the BRICS levels, which means sugar levels, rise. And that becomes um, a poison, a toxin to insects. 
and they go to the weak plants that are always the fertilized plants. Those plants are weaker and more susceptible to insect damage. We know that when we get the high fungal communities, this, this huge array, the plant associates with and lets many of them colonize their roots so that they can get a direct line of extra water being brought to them by the fungi, of nutrients being brought to them, particularly minerals to them, but sometimes even nitrogen to them. And they will then send sugars and carbohydrates back to the fungi. When that happens, diseases, because those fungi will fight off bad fungi that maybe want to cause plant diseases. So the plant gets healthier in that way too. Well, then we know as the plant has uh, higher levels of sugars, uh, better protein structures, et cetera, you end up with better food typically. And that we've seen some data on, and we love to test more and more and more because we're quite confident the results and the data will continue to sort of unfold a logic here that uh, this is the way nature is going to work. And therefore, it is the kind of food as it shows up in the animals, we think it will show up consistently in the fruits and the nuts and the vegetables, you know, and the grains that we eat. When I was at Rodale, I do know that the oat plants and the oat grain and the oat roots uh, in crops grown on the organic soil versus the conventional soil was always higher in all the minerals and the vitamins than mm -hmm. the conventional. So I'm going to say yes, and I want more data so we can be really have for all the naysayers the kind of information that just cannot be argued. Real quick, I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is, until I discovered ThriveMarket.com. Thrive Market is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. How can somebody like me tell right now going to a grocery store if the produce and meat I'm buying was grown on a regenerative farm? Or is it more you have to find it at a farmer's market? Probably you're going to have a better chance in direct conversation with the farmer at your farmer's market to ask them how they're farming uh -huh. and, you know, how much tillage are they doing? Are they using chemicals, etc.? And so, and then are they bringing either compost in or growing cover crops? Are they trying to keep a live root in the ground? Do they know about the biology? Are they working with that? And, and so you as an informed consumer, by asking the question, if the farmer's not informed, you're going to begin to challenge them because you are their customer. It's right. the same thing when you go into a grocery store. They used to always say if six people walk into a grocery store and ask for product X, that product will show up. You know, this uh -huh. is going to be the same thing with regenerative. So, um, um, will Whole Foods begin to lead this? Will some other um, markets begin to lead this? Um, one of the major cereal companies is engaged in trying to convert a lot of farmers and their grains to regenerative. I was on yeah. a phone call with them this week. Um, and I know an ice cream company that talks, keeps talking about that. 
Uh, we know a chocolate company that's doing that. We do know of um, companies that are working on, uh, particularly in other countries, trying to get some of the crops produced regeneratively. And part of it is based upon their commitment to going carbon neutral. Part of it's starting to come around to understand uh, the farmer's livelihood is, should and could be improved and the consumer's well-being because they're understanding this nutrient piece too. I know that there's so many farms that grow feed for cattle currently, all the grains they're eating. So this might be a stupid question, but that it seems like that would be kind of a source of contention then because if all if we were switching over to animals grazing on grass, then what would happen to all of those farms? Like would could you churn those into something else or is that not possible? Well, this is where federal policy historically has been kind of helping destroy the soil through all the grains, the corns and the soybeans being produced in this country. And in, in essence, for animal feed and, and for ethanol, which is an absurd idea to start with because it's not really that carbon helpful. So in essence, what happens is, is that we destroy soils, we pollute the rivers, we kill the Gulf of Mexico, all because of this policy that's supporting mega corporations and businesses towards these monoculture crops that destroys even the biodiversity and has destroyed communities as we've gone to this. Instead of having diverse farms that had animals and fruit trees and vegetables and grains all together and, you know, good school systems and libraries and, and local businesses in their local communities, all that's gone. You know, it's mass acres of corn or soybeans. Those small towns have died out. Um, School districts have consolidated, uh, businesses have left, and it it's a, was a very destructive on the social, ecological, and economic, and I would say fabric of American life uh, process. So what happens if you go to the grass-fed? Well, some of those fields can go back into being pasture, uh, or you know, now not the native grasslands, but pastures that can mimic the native grasslands and start to capture carbon. The other thing is, is you can start to regrow some of the vegetables and fruit in those regions. They used to have orchards. They used to produce vegetables more for more local marketing uh, instead of shipping it so far. Um, so that can be helpful. And it maybe can start to rebuild communities. I would offer the example of White Oak Pastures, uh, Will Harris in, in Bluffton, Georgia, uh, a dying little community. And he started to do this holistic grazing and change the way he treated his animals. And now he raises pigs and sheep and chickens and beef on thousands of acres. And he's building housing in a town that was dying. And he's developed two processing plants to process this meat. And he's building the soil. He's building the economy. He's building jobs. He's treating the animals better than they were in CAFOs for sure. They're not using antibiotics, they're all in grass. And it's, it's a, a, the birds are returning. Um, that is an opportunity to make that shift. Uh, mm -hmm. So the idea, first of all, there's this old statement that says America feeds the world. That's propaganda. You, you, if you go to other parts of the world and if you've traveled, you're not eating American food. What yeah. do they mean by that? That's a lie. It's not a lie. It's not the truth. We export about 20% of our food and we import about 15%. Well, we certainly don't feed the world with 5% of what we produce. It doesn't even come close. So that's baloney. Um, secondarily, uh, when we consider this, I, I think that we want to rethink from the standpoint of 
how we're eating too. And we know processed foods are not healthy for us. So more fresh, more whole food are, are really important, which means let's come back to that farm idea and, and a diverse farm, because that's a healthier farm, healthier uh, biology and biosystem uh, if it's more diverse. And the soil gets healthier with more diversity. Uh, and I would argue the community does as well. How do you feel about the whole vegan and vegetarian movement that's really pushing just to eat plants only to reduce the carbon footprint? Do you feel like their efforts are kind of misguided or do you support that as well? I don't think they're misguided. I think they're misinformed. I support Uh it as well. Uh, The misinforming part is if you have animals grazed properly that they're capturing carbon and building biodiversity and health of systems, ecosystems, then that's not a climate problem. That's a climate helper. Um, If it is the CAFO environment where you're growing the corn and soybeans and shipping it to a feedlot, you are creating a problem. And that Mm -hmm. we should stop. And those animals are not treated well, and a lot of them are put on antibiotics to survive uh, be, of these intense, concentrated um, popula- you know, populations close together. So in essence, um, I don't discourage them, and I understand. And uh, sometimes I go vegan, sometimes I go vegetarian. Every once in a while, um, you know, I cross the line, but not much. I'm still a dairyman at heart. I love cattle, but... If they're on grass, I think it's a marvelous uh, collaboration uh, between a ruminant, the biology of the soil, and a protein source uh, that can be consumed. Some will argue we shouldn't be drinking that. And I'm not going to argue that. I said leave that up to people's own understandings. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about all the fake meat products that would require growing more soy and things like that? Well, I, I think that's maybe okay, but, uh, but in essence, I don't think it means growing more soy at all. I think it probably means growing less soy if we weren't eating the CAFO environment. Uh, meat. Uh. So we would, we would need probably less, uh, not more. If we would stop treating animals in high concentration, uh, polluting scenarios. Right. Well, I know you know everything about this topic, and I know more now, but still very little. Is there anything we missed that you think we should definitely touch on? Well, you know, I'm not sure if we missed it. It really depends on what people's interests are. And I would encourage anybody to go onto our website at Chico State University or Cal State University Chico and in the Center for Regenerative Ag. And there's web pages with lots of land, a web page there with lots of landing sites with speakers, with um, um, collaborating farmers, with research projects that are going on and some articles that people can read more and, and study more and connect more with regard to this topic, this emerging topic um, that needs to emerge rapidly. And honestly, Brooke, we need everybody's help uh, for everybody's future. This, this, helps absolutely everyone on the planet and it helps all of life on the planet and it will help restore the biodiversity that we're losing so rapidly on the planet. I'll definitely put links to your website and all of those other resources you mentioned in the show notes so people can find those. The last question I ask each of my guests based on the title of the podcast is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? 
to me, what it means to make the health investment is, is a consciousness that reconnects to earth. And I would take this from a depth psychological realm to start with in the regard to the more we disconnect from that which gives and sustains our life, the more we become tied up in an ego, uh, in a process that's false, a process that is not reverential or in good relationship to that which really makes life. And in essence, as we talk today, soil is core to that. But all of nature, all of life is very important. And we need to be thinking in terms of how our actions affects in the way of creating, supporting more life, or killing and destroying it on this planet. And to me, that's a, a uh, something I think that Pope Francis tried to get in his encyclical, tried to get us to consciously engage if we have a religious or a spiritual focus. Um, but just from the standpoint of survival and the future, either for ourselves or for our offspring or for our friends' offspring, that we should hold dearly in a way to reorient the way we look at our relationship to earth. And boy, does she have a lot to teach us if we right. just begin to open our eyes and listen and investigate and then start to act uh, to make a difference with regard to that. Well, I'm so grateful for you being here today. I can't wait to do a deeper dive into all of the resources you have on the Chico State website. And I wish I could take some type of course from you or <laughs> learn more. It's so Thank fascinating. You. Thank you. It is fascinating. Thank you. And it is exciting. Thank you. It really is. Well, thank you so, so much for being here, Tim. Appreciate your time. My pleasure, Brooke. All the best. Well, that's all for today. Before the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one -on -one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness. So let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.